Well, after all those donuts, maybe we should pray for the children's church workers. It's always nice to give other people's kids chocolate and then turn them loose, isn't it? You know, speaking of uh, other people's kids, I heard a story just recently about two older men. They were sitting around a supermarket, and they were getting up there near their 80s. And one of them had, been, had married a 25-year-old girl. So the other older man was asking him, he said, my gracious, 25 years old? He said, you're, you're an old man. He said, what did you marry her for? He said, is she a good cook? He said, no, no, she can't cook. He said, well, is she pretty? He went, no, no, not really. He says, then what in the world did you marry her for? He said, because she can see to drive at night. <laughs> so, so needs change in life, don't they? Grandparents' Day. Well, you know what? We're in a final message in our series on spiritual warfare, but since we have grandparents here today, we have to share a little bit of information, don't we? Did you know, and I researched this, this is some older statistics, but grandparents play a vital role in our world today. As a matter of fact, some years ago, there were 6.1 million grandparents whose grandchildren younger than 18 lived with them. That is a staggering number. And I am sure that the number has went up. When I tried to research the number today, the data was not available. So, and there was some conflicting things. But grandparents are crucial in the role of uh, raising and also mentoring children. But there are some funny quotes that I saw. Let me just read a couple to you. Grandmas are moms with lots of frosting. Grandfathers are just like antique little boys. Never have children, one man said, only grandchildren. When grandparents enter the door, discipline flies out the window. Grandmas never run out of hugs or cookies. And if I had known how wonderful it would have been to have had grandchildren, I would have had them first. That comes from Lois Wise. My grandkids believe I'm the oldest thing in the world, and after two or three hours with them, I believe it. An hour with your grandchildren can make you feel young again, anything longer that, and you start to age quickly. Just a couple more. Grandmother is a wonderful mother with lots of practice. Grandparents are similar to a piece of string, handy to have around and easily wrapped around the fingers of their grandchildren. No cowboy was ever faster on the draw than a grandparent pulling a baby, baby picture out of his wallet. And if you ever think that being a grandparent isn't important, then listen to these statistics. I've already read 6.1 million are the number of grandparents who have children living. 2.5 million is the number of grandparents responsible for the most basic needs, food, shelter, and clothing of one or more of the grandchildren who live with them. These grandparents represent about 40% of all grandparents whose grandchildren live with them. Of these caregivers, 1.6 million are grandmothers alone, and 896,000 are grandfathers. Wow. 918,000 is the number of grandparents responsible for caring for their grandchildren for at least the past five years. And 5.7 million is the number of children living with a grandparent. These children comprise 8% of all children in the United States. The majority of these children, 3.7 million, live directly in the grandparents' home. And that came from uh, families and living arrangements back in the 2000s. Do you actually know how Grandparents' Day got started, by the way? I wouldn't read this to you if it wasn't important, but actually there was a couple in West Virginia. <laughs> West Virginia, who happened to win a football game yesterday, 60-something to nothing. They played some high school team, so I don't know why they won that much. <laughs> But they were residents of Fayette County, West Virginia. Marion McQuaid and her husband Joe, they were parents of 15 children. Yeah, that's what I said. Grandparents of 40 and great-grandparents of 8. And it was her work that began in 1956 that eventually helped persuade President Richard Nixon to proclaim National Shut-In Day. Then in 1973, after a five-year campaign, Ms. McQuaid, who did not quit, pushed the legislation that Congress passed proclaiming that the first Sunday after Labor Day 
would be National Grandparents Day. Do you want to know why? Because as the autumn leaves change, so do grandparents' hair, right? And their age, and so they decide that the first Sunday after Labor Day, due to the autumn change of the season, would represent grandparents. In a special aired on MSNBC several years ago, researchers found that the most defining social change taking place is actually the aging of America. America is getting older As a matter of fact, one person said that life expectancy at the turn of the century was approximately 46 years of age. In other words, in 1900, I would be a dead man because I'm too old. However, today, 40-some, 50 years, uh, many years later, the date is approximately 76 years old for the average lifespan. That is quite a difference, isn't it? Thirty some years later, thirty years of life. If the older generation, however, doesn't understand the importance of their role and teach the younger generation, guess what happens? They'll not be taught. They won't be taught. So what is the role of an older generation? Well, I just want to share a couple of things. You're getting two sermons today. One is in Psalm 78, so turn there real quick, and it's going to be fast like lightning. Boom, because I'm getting to my message. But Psalm 78 was a psalm of remembrance retelling the history of the nation of Israel. So I'm going to read a few verses in verse 3, 4, down through 8, make three comments, and then tie it into today's message. But listen to what the text says. I'm in verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. See the concept of grandchildren here? We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generations the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. What did He do? Well, verse 5, He established a testimony in Jacob. What does that mean? He established a testimony in Jacob. Well, obviously that means God was making a name for himself through a group of people. He told the nation of Israel, people are going to see you and say, what kind of a great God is this who gives a law and a land and ability to a people like this to set them up on a hill and put them in major roadways that go right through the central part of the country. He is a God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and a God of grace and love. And this... Man, this psalmist says, we will not fail to tell what God has done for us. By the way, when you gather around your table and your kids and your family, what do we talk about? I'm talking to me too. What do we talk about? We complain about everything under the sun, don't we? Complain about politics. Complain about this. Complain about that. This psalmist said, if you want to impact the next generation, give praise to God. Give praise to Him, even in the midst of darkness and problems and so forth. You know, God brought the nation of Israel out of some darkness. Plagues of Egypt. He brought them out of the Red Sea. He brought them out of the wilderness wandering. He took them through all kinds of hard times. I mean, you're talking about calamity. That nation faced calamity. And what did this psalmist say? He said, you know what? I'm going to talk about the good times. The times that God showed his faithfulness. And you know what? When we talk about the goodness of God and God's faithfulness, it does something inside the hearts of people. So that's one important thing is the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Look down in verse the rest of verse 5. And he appointed a law in Israel. In other words, he gave them the Ten Commandments. What are the Ten Commandments? No God before me, no idols. What else did he say? Honor father and mother, do not steal, do not lie, do not cheat. All those things that we have to take out of the school because they're bad and they might offend somebody, right? We've got to get rid of them off every government building because if you tell people don't lie, don't cheat, don't commit adultery, don't do this, I mean, that might offend somebody and we don't like offending anybody. Yes, we do. He said, you know what? God gave a law in Israel which were ten commandments that he put down that actually told a society this is how you get along with each other. You don't murder. You don't covet another man's property. You don't steal. You don't cheat with his wife. 
You don't lie to people. And guess what? If you do those things, you will actually get along with one another. It's amazing. And then on top of that, he gave laws about himself. I am a God. There's no one like me, so don't try to make anything like me, whether it's a ranger bass boat or a big John Deere tractor. And don't fall down and worship it on, on the worship day. Because if you bow down and worship that thing, your heart will leave from me. And guess what? You'll go try to find pleasure. And then you'll be like Solomon and realize at the end of life, pleasure didn't do one thing for you because it's all vanity. Don't spend your life chasing money. Chase me. Because at the end of your life, money's going to fail you. You can have billions in the bank and you're going to die. And you will give everything you have away. Come after me. And set aside one day a week where you don't do one thing except come in and hear my word and gather together with my people so that you can encourage one another, you can love one another, and you can be reminded of my faithfulness. Now, by the way, those days are gone, aren't they? Because, you know, back a few years ago, there were no businesses open on Sunday. And people used to work on the farm, and they worked out in, in, the, in the agricultural area, and they wanted a day's break. And the reason church service was at 11 o'clock during the day was so that the farmers could milk the cows, you all hear me now, get the morning chores done, and they could do enough in the morning before 9 o'clock to get all the kids dressed up in the Sunday best, haul them in the wagons to the church, and get there in time to gather at 11 o'clock and hear preaching and then share a meal together. And then after they ate lunch, they'd have another service and then they'd go home and sit around by the shade tree because Monday was coming again. And by the way, think of the tradition that carried over that. You know, no preacher today that's going to have an effective service is going to have it at 10.30 or 11 o'clock. What's the matter with this? It's, a, it's the time of morning naps for babies. It's a time when everybody's starving to death and you only have just a limited time to preach. But nevertheless, we see the things that carry over into our society. But anyway, what, do I, what am I saying? They were faithful. They set aside a time during the week where they were going to give their undivided attention to God and worship Him and worship His people. Do you know what the average church attendance of a quote-unquote Christian is? Today, how many times they faithfully attend service a month? I'm afraid to tell you. You can research that. But let me tell you something, folks. We live in a different culture. People don't put importance on Sunday worship and Sunday gathering again. You say, boy, you are nasty. I'm not nasty. I'm telling you the truth. If we get tired or some excuse comes up or whatever... Church does not become a priority. Gathering doesn't become a priority. Grandma and grandpa, you grab that grandchild and you take them to church every time you can. And you teach them that gathering with God's people and hearing God's Word and being challenged spiritually is important. Because if they don't see it from you, they won't see it. Amen, I got one. Watch out, because they often say that saying amen to a fired up preacher is like saying sick them to a bulldog. So I'm liable to get off course here. But this is the truth. And you know what happens? Grandfather and grandmother set that standard and the son and the daughter are challenged by the conviction of the grandma and the grandpa. And the son and the daughter follow in the steps of the faithfulness of their parents and their kids are watching them. And you know what happens? It turns into the best habit that you could ever get into because... Church attendance is a discipline and a habit. Hearing God's Word is a discipline. If you come here and pull out that phone and start scrolling through Facebook while preaching's coming, you ain't going to get one thing out of the sermon. Excuse my bad English, but I'm just saying it like it is. You've got to hear the Word of God. You've got to stop worrying about who's around you and start saying, Lord, you talk to me. Where is my life faithless? And you challenge me, and I want to be faithful to you. And I want to pass it on to my children and my grandchildren. And then I want my neighbors to see that. I want them to see that I love you and I trust you. And God, you have given some commandments. You know, there are some commandments that, that we should live by, some standards in our life. 
It's not just foot loose and fancy free. God has told us wisdom that if you disobey this, it is going to cost you. Do you know where is the saying today that if you break God's law, you will pay a consequence? If you have relationships outside of marriage and you go and you start being promiscuous, you are going to pay a price for that. Whether it's in your body or whether it's in the body of the other person, there's going to be ramifications to that. If you steal, if you lie, if you cheat, if you scandal, you're going to get caught eventually. And guess what's going to happen? You're going to come down. It might be fun for a while, but as the proverb says, sin is pleasant for a season, but then you end up with a mouthful of dirt. There's a price to pay for, and this is what the older generation would say. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to do what? To teach to their children. They were to not just teach it, but they were to live it. I read a story recently where four Bible scholars were sitting around talking about their favorite translation. One scholar, he was a PhD, you know, all astute, he said, I like the New American Standard Version because it takes the woodenness out of the King James Version and it puts it right down into plain, understandable, literal English. The other man said, well, I like the King James Version because it gives the thys and the these and the thous and it seems like more reverent language. The other scholar said, well, believe it or not, I like the NIV because it is more of a dynamic equivalent. So instead of just worrying about word for word, it gives you the thought. And the fourth scholar sat back and he said, well, you know what? This might sound irreverent. He said, but I like my mother's version. One scholar just laughed. He said, your mother's version? He said, yeah. He said, she lived exactly everything she read. Her translation was the best. You know, it's interesting. We fight and argue about this translation or that translation or whatever, and it never translates into life. And one scholar knew that the most important thing is when the Word of God hits the life of a person and changes the way they live. This is how you know, by the way, if you are walking with the Lord... Because this book changes the way you treat your wife. This book changes the way you treat your husband. This book changes the way you're a parent. This book changes your way as an employee. You know, when, if I ever get on an ordination council board, by the way, you know, sometimes churches will ordain people in the ministry. I used to ask all theological questions. You know, what is the filiquet clause? What, who... Who knows that? I mean, okay, so what are we doing with that? You know, you know what I ask now? It's, these are the questions I ask. I want you to tell me how reading God's Word has made you a better husband to your wife. How? When you're angry, how has God's Word helped you deal with anger in your life? When you're tempted with sin, how has God's Word helped you overcome that temptation? When you are in a job and you're treated wrong by your employer, how has God's Word helped you overlook what they said and the wrongs they did and help you be faithful? You know why? Because now you're going to know whether they know Colossians. It says, you are not serving your employee. You're serving God. And when you work for your employer, don't do it with eye service as a man pleaser, just wanting praise from people. You serve your employer from the heart because God's the one who's really watching you and He's the one that's going to give you praise. You see, you understand if it gets down into life. And this man says here that we are to teach this to our children. The wonders He has done. That the next generation might know them. If we don't teach them, they won't know them. If we don't live them, we won't show them. This is how crucial and important it is. Look what he says in verse 6, that the next generation might know them and that the children yet unborn. Wow, the children yet unborn. I can remember when my wife was pregnant with our children, she used to read to them in the womb. Isn't that interesting? Read to them. That the children yet unborn would know them, and arise 
and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. This is called passing down the heritage. This is called intentional grandparenting. Intentional parenting. We're not just doing this to get by. We're doing this to instill something in the life of our children so that if they choose not to do it, they're going to know that there was another option. You know, by the way, the older we get and the more we see our children grow up, you and I can't dictate their hearts. And that's one thing as a grandparent they know. You can't master and control your children forever. They have their own life. They have their own walk with God. You can encourage them. You can influence them. You can do everything you can. But you can't walk for God through them. They have to choose to do that. But this man says, I'm going to give them every opportunity that they possibly can to see it, hear it, be taught it, be instructed it, and everything else. So there will be no excuse. They knew the right way. And the psalmist will say, you know, here is the way. Walk ye in it. You saw Grandpa live like that. You saw Grandma live like that. Now, here's the trail, son. It's a well-worn, ancient path. Get in the path in the practical areas of life. This is how you handle money. This is how you handle finance. This is how you handle debt. This is how you handle marital problems. This is how you handle children when they're rebellious. This is how you handle your job and employee. This is how you handle a difficult neighbor. Practical things in life. You've watched grandma and grandpa deal with it. Mom and dad, now walk in it. By the way, that's what we need to be talking to our children about, isn't it? And our grandchildren. Are y'all asleep as the sugar coma done kicked in? You say, no, we're just waiting for you to get to the rest of that sermon. This is going to be forever. Yeah, this is just an introduction. Look in verse 7. So that they should set their hope on God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and that they should not be like their rebellious fathers. Yeah, they had some in their family. Y'all got any rebellious people in your family that you tell your children, please, please don't live like such and such. Because if you live your life like them, God's Word says the way of a sinner is hard. The way of the sinner is hard. And if you don't believe me, look look at a rough life. And buddy, the way of a sinner is hard. Don't live like them, son, because if you do, that's what your life's going to be like. So that they should set their hope on God for not forget His works, but keep His commandments. They should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is a challenge, by the way, of grandparents. So this is what we should point to. Now, there's one more thing that grandparents should teach their grandchildren. You know what that is? That you're in a war. You are in a war. And if you don't believe me, look at God's Word. Ephesians chapter 6, very quickly. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. I know, I know, I'm switching gears here, but there's a point. Paul was in Ephesus, and he wrote the book of Ephesians, and the whole point of the book, all six chapters, is about unity. Unity. Harold Honer wrote a great big commentary on Ephesians about that thick. He's one of the best scholars on the whole book. He made it his life study, and Honer says this, that if you cut right in the middle of the book of Ephesians, you'll find that it's unity. And here's what I'm going to tell you. He says that unity is pieced everywhere in this book. It's unity in the Trinity, unity in salvation, unity uh, all throughout, even in the practical steps of life. But here's the point of Ephesians chapter 6. Are you ready for this? In spiritual warfare, guess what has to happen? The church has to be in unity. Because did you know that you have a place in my warfare? And I have a place in your warfare. And every one of you have a place in each other's warfare. And a healthy church, this is what happens. People share their struggles with each other. They, they share their temptations with each other. And the other person is able to speak truth into the life of that person. 
and help them. Now, by the way, that's what a healthy church family is supposed to be like. And what are, what are most of our church families like? But let's just be honest here. People sit around and look and they go, look at that person over there, man, well-dressed. I bet they got it all together. No problems. I, I would hate to tell them about my life because they would never want to look at me. And you know what that person's saying? Well, I came in here this morning all dressed up nice and pretty. Inside my life's falling apart. Nobody to be with. This is going on. That's going on. Nobody knows about it. My whole world's crumbling, but I have to smile. I have to smile. You know what? We've been pounding on this the whole series. We're all broken. We all have problems. We all struggle with temptation. We are all under spiritual attack. We all have struggles of the flesh. Every one of us. And I don't care if you're 98 or 8. You struggle with sin. And I've heard the older you get, the worse it gets. All you grandparents don't say a word. Because we don't want to be discouraged, okay? But we've got to be unified in battle. How do we do that? We have to have unity in war. We have strength. We have an enemy. And we have armor. What is our strength? Look in verse 10. Ephesians 6.10. You know what the strength is. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Paul never says, pull up your Christian belt of strength and go show them what a super saint you are. He said, absolutely not. If you're going to win in this battle, you're going to fight in the strength of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did for you to make you a Christian. By the way, what did he do? You know, normally when, when the church gathers, we are giving instruction to build up believers. This is, not a, this is not the Billy Graham crusade where we only preach to you the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. But the church is made for God's people to come in and hear instruction who have already trusted in the death, burial, and resurrection. And if anybody hasn't, accepted Christ's death on the cross for their sins, they'll hear that and understand that God's given them a gift of forgiveness and not just forgiveness. He's given them a gift of righteousness which they could never earn on their own in order that they might be able to stand before Him as forgiven and as righteous as Jesus. By the way, that's called the gospel. The good news that God Himself died on a cross on our behalf and by grace gave us this perfect gift of forgiveness and righteousness. The great exchange. He took our sin and put it upon Christ, and in turn took Christ's righteousness and put it upon us so that we belong to Him. And in light of that, He gives us His Spirit who lives inside of us and empowers us and enables us. And His Holy Spirit in us is what, by the way, helps us unite as a church, did you know that? I mean, some of y'all like Fords. I'd still drink a cup of coffee with you, even though I wonder about you sometimes. <laughs> and I drive a Chevrolet, and some of you wonder about me. Now, me and Brian can work in the same office with each other. You know why? It's not because we like the same trucks. It's because we have the same spirit. And we know what's important in life, and it's not Ford or Chevy. It's Jesus, His Word, His Spirit. We love each other because of that. And in a church, this is, the, this is what unites. Paul says that we are by one Spirit, one Spirit baptism, one faith. This is what unites the body. And Paul says, you better be ready for this because it's going to take all of us. Not, this is not an individual effort. Every verb in here is plural. Finally, Y'all, you let me say it like that? That's how, that's how people get it. Because we, we think this is individual. Finally, you. And you think, oh, this is just me. So I have to put on the helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, and the Word of God. No, 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 no. Listen to me. The church, the corporate body, the local assembly together, has to, we have to be looking out for each other. And we are to go at it in the strength of the Lord. In the power of His might. How do we do this? Paul goes on to say in verses 11 and 12, because we have an enemy. Verse 12, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, 
the cosmic powers over this present darkness and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. You all believe there's spiritual wickedness? If you don't, just think about 20 years ago yesterday. I was at Piedmont Baptist College training. I was one year into my Bible training. Walking down the side of that campus. And somebody came out and said, America's being attacked. We didn't even have a TV inside there. I mean, it's just life-shattering for me. I was like, what? You've got to be kidding me. And then all these events unfold. And what did we find out was the cause of it? That another religion who hates the West, it's Islam, by the way, in case you were wondering. Let me go ahead and say it. Islam hated the West. They hated America. They hate Christianity. And they decided to plot evil against their nation and they aimed right for the financial gain of the world center. They hijacked planes. They rammed them right into the World Trade Center. They aimed one right at the Pentagon, which is the military force of the United States of America showing that we're going to destroy it. And they had another one aiming right for where? The White House. They were going to take it out. And if it wasn't for the brave man and the women on that plane that said it's ready to roll we're all going to die but they're not hitting our white house and they buckled up called and had prayer with somebody and said we're all going down and they gave their life and they took them out to save them from tearing the white house down you know what could have happened that day you understand what could have happened i mean you talking about spiritual wickedness and forces of evil they are about today They hover over our nation. And these spiritual forces of evil say what? That right is wrong and wrong is right. Let me make it as simple as I can. God is bad and He's a figment of the imagination. He shouldn't be in schools. He shouldn't be in curriculum. He shouldn't be anywhere. Get rid of Him and everything else is on the table. And you will celebrate it. And if you don't, you'll be canceled and you'll be vilified. Let me ask you a question. Where in the world does all that come from? Where does that come from? Just stop all that and let's ask the question. And don't point to one person. Don't talk about Hugh Hefner and Playboy. I mean, I, I hear all that stuff. Let me tell you where it comes from. It comes from the one that everybody believes doesn't exist. And that is the devil himself. Jesus said about the devil, what, he is a liar from the beginning. He is a murderer and there is no truth in him. You know, do you know what the biggest lie is today? That God doesn't exist. He's a figment of the imagination. That his word isn't true. And that the gospel isn't real. And he really didn't die for people. And there is no absolute truth. What's absolute mean? That means there's a, it is right and it is wrong, and we know this because there is an absolute truth. And what is that absolute truth? It's the Word of God. You, sh- you knock that foundation out from under it. You take this, and you knock the authority of God's Word out from under something, and it's gone. Now, folks, listen. Look at our educational institution. I'm not attacking anybody. I'm trying to say something to you. Look at our educational institution. They have taken prayer and the Word of God and through it, Years and years in the past, and we will not consult it, we will not consider it, we don't care what it says, you can't talk about it, you can't bring it up, you can't... And you know what's happened? We've muzzled our teachers, we've muzzled God, and guess what we have out of it? A disaster. PhDs in college teaching our kids there's no such thing as God, that God can't be real, and this and that. You raise your children, you send them off to a secular university. If they're not grounded, what happens? They get talked right out of their faith. Now, I'm not saying don't send them to secular university. I'm not saying don't send them to a secular school. I'm simply saying if that's the case, we have work cut out for us. Because we do have work. And we have to share the truth. My point is this, where is all this energy and all this strategy? Who would have ever dreamed the first thing you do is take prayer out of school and the next thing you do is you take the public Bible reading out of school. You all listen to this progression. And then what do you take out of school? You take paddling out of school. Now, you might have difference of opinion here and that's fine. I'm not trying to get into a controversy with you about somebody else spanking your children. 
But see, when you take God's word out of class, you also take discipline and authority out of class because this is what tells us discipline is what corrects. Spare the rod. I got you. No, it's not. That's Spock. God's word says spare the rod. Hate the child. Now I'm going to get all kinds of hate mail. How dare you say? I'm just telling you what God's word says. Get rid of the Bible. Get rid of authority. Now comes in. You know, you get rid of the Word of God and here comes Dr. Spock. What does he say? You don't ever want to discipline a child because you might bend their will. And if you bend their will, you might actually make them go down a different path. Well, praise the Lord. That's exactly what we want to do. We want to turn them from a liar and a selfish little brat into a God-honoring a law-abiding citizen. And you know how you do that? You teach them that sin hurts. And there's consequences with wrongdoing. And yes, sometimes it might mean that they get their fanny spanked. In love, of course, not in anger. In love, teaching them lessons. Boy, I can sense it now. I'm going to get some good letter. That's okay, I don't mind them at all. Send them. But it's the truth. My point, where is all this energy trying to divert our culture from a God-fearing, God-centered culture that had at least God's Word being read publicly and the Ten Commandments displayed, and now it's went completely out the windows? Where did the energy and the funding and the money come from? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world. And they are empowering men and women to carry out their evil plans. And that's who we wrestle against. So church, y'all understand that? Have I pounded on that enough over the last five months or ever how long I've been on this? Seems like a year, doesn't it? And our enemy knows our weaknesses and he knows our ways. So what are we to do? We're to know he exists. We're to put on the armor as the whole church. How do we do that as a church? Paul says in verse 13, Therefore take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And praise the Lord, we can finally say what? We live in the evil day. Next week, by the way, I'm preaching one more week, and then Brian's going to come up here and he's going he's to come up here and go at it for several weeks. I've got one more week and I've got one more sermon in me, and I'm going to preach to you out of the Old Testament prophets. And about the New Testament, about what in the world is going on today. That's what I'm going to talk about next Sunday. Current events. What is going on? What, I mean, what, what does a believer do with all this stuff we're seeing? So you all know, I'll probably get Christian's monster over here and drink it before I preach next week. <laughs> I never even had coffee, by the way, before I spoke. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you might be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, you stand. Church, don't you dare back down. Don't you dare back down. When the cancel culture and the mob culture and the hate culture comes after you, don't you dare, don't you dare back down. What are you to do? You take up the armor of God because you're in a battle and you know they're going to come after you. You know they're going to say this and that. And that. Okay, say it. Say it. Who cares? Say it. Go ahead. We understand that. We are in an island of a few. But you know what? Our island doesn't move because it's fastened to the solid rock. And that rock is Jesus and that rock doesn't move. You are to take up the belt of truth, which is the first instrument. What is that? That's where the Roman soldiers used to pull their, their dress up. They had a, a tunic, by the way. It looks like a dress. Pull it up. They'd take that belt and they'd tie it around and cinch it up. They'd get ready for battle. That way it didn't get in their way. Paul, Paul basically says this, Christian... You cannot live your life without truth. If you tell lies in your life and you are, I mean, it's deception and deceit and you try to live your life off deception and deceit, it's not going to work. The church won't work like that. Individual lives won't work like that. You've got to be honest. You've got to be truthful. Take up the belt of truth. That is exactly what he's saying. The second piece of armor, the breastplate of righteousness. This breastplate, what was it? It's what protected their vitals. This, this thing was so important. And Paul says what? Take up, put on the breastplate of righteousness. 
righteous conduct here seems to be what he's talking about, not necessarily the righteousness of Christ. He's, he assumes you already have that as a believer, as the church. So you're to be truthful, and you are to be righteous in your conduct. What does righteous mean? What does it mean? It means righteous. It means what God says is right. That's what you live. That's what you do. Righteousness. The breastplate covered his, his vitals from his neck all the way down. And so God's Word and living this truth out in our life is what protects our heart, protects our mind, protects everything about us, our vital organs. What's the next piece? The shoes under your feet. I think about football cleats here. The King James says, having your feet shod. What's, what does that mean, shod? I don't know what that means. What does the ESV say? As shoes for your feet, uh, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In other words, football cleats. Imagine this imagery. Can you imagine playing, uh, playing football on a muddy field in a pair of flip-flops? Now let me ask you a difference. What is the difference in a player that goes out on a rainy, uh, wet football field in a pair of flip-flops and tries to run to the goal line? What is the difference between an absolute excellent player and then you have an average player who puts on his cleats? What's the difference? By the way, you ever seen good men fall? You ever seen wide, wide receivers and all these people? Very talented, but the conditions are so bad they can't stand. You ever seen that? They're no better than anybody else. You want to know why? They don't have any footing. You don't have any footing. You don't have any stance. What's Paul say? You are to prepare yourself. Put on shoes that will get you grounded. And what's the grounding? It's the gospel. It's what our life's built on. It's the gospel that brings what? The gospel of? Okay, gospel of peace. Have your shoes, have your feet grounded with the gospel that... Brings peace to our life. What does that mean? What does that mean? Church, if, if you're going to be effective, you know what? You've got to be peace. You've got to be at peace. Peace with God, peace with others. By the way, what's, what is your goal, grandparents and parents as a home? You, you know what our goal is? This is our family. I'm letting you on a little bit of personal info. Our, we want our home to be base. We want it to be a place where our kids and hopefully in the future our grandkids can come and it's a place of peace. My mom and dad were able to provide that for us and we love to go home because I could always go home and my dad, no matter what mood he was in, it was a place of peace. That's what we want to establish for our children, our neighbors. You know, you want to come over and eat all of our ham sandwich and our, our cheese and drink all my milk? Come on over. That's fine, we'll buy more, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter for grocery bills, 800 or 1800, bring your friends over. Let them eat up all, don't get in my graham crackers and my peanut butter though. <laughs> There'll be war. But we'll be at peace as long as you stay out of my graham cracker. But, what is the point? We want it to be a place of peace. Paul says, church, if you want to be effective in your individual life and in your church, you've got to have peace. I mean... Who is the, what is the opposite of peace? War! Who is, the, who is the one who brings on the war? Thank you. So, to offset that, what are we to do? We are to have peace. This is what Paul says now. And we're to take the shield of faith so that we can quench the fiery darts of the enemy when he fires them. You know, everybody talks about these shields. You know, oh yeah, they were two foot by this way, four foot. They covered them. Outside of it was leather so that when they shot a fiery arrow, it would go in stick and it wouldn't burn the wood up. Is that the point? Or is what Paul's saying is this. He's saying you've got to have something to protect you when darts and flaming uh, paraphernalia comes at you. And you know what that is, church? It's the faith. It's the faith you have in God through His Word. You have to believe He's true even when it doesn't feel like He's true. By the way, you know, you hear young people struggle with inferiority. Oh, I, I feel so terrible about myself. I don't. You know what you tell them? Listen, parents and grandparents, what you tell them when they say, oh, I feel like nobody loves me. You stop that. You stop, you're listening to the liar. 
You're listening to the liar. Stop. I don't care how you feel. Let's go right here. Let's see what God says. God says He loves you. He loves you. This is truth. Your feelings are lies. I'm not saying they're not real. What I'm saying is they are not true. You go to God's Word and right there it's what's true. He loves you. And now you change your feelings based upon what He says. And you choose to believe Him even when you don't feel like it and when you can't explain it. That's the shield of faith, by the way. And then the helmet of salvation, referred to here, it's not our initial trust in Christ, rather it's our dependence upon God while under attack. What does he say here? Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We are to take those things so that we can extinguish the darts and we can protect ourselves. The sword of the Spirit. It's an interesting uh, phrase here. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You know, if we talk about this book, we use a Greek word called logos. The Word, the logos. But this word, take the Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. It's, it is a different Greek word, which I know doesn't make too much sense. But it's a little word, R-E-H-M-A. Rhema. That's not, you know, the whole Bible. What Paul's saying, when someone is under attack and they're being threatened or something, God's people have to know how to address that. And how do we do that? We take, we take truths from God's Word and apply it right to the situation. For example, what? I don't feel loved. What, what would you do if somebody came to you and said, I don't think God loves me? What would you do? What would you do? Well, here's what you'd do. You'd take God's Word. You'd open it to Romans chapter 5, verse 8 for the first place because you know that in your mind. God commended His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then you'd tell them, listen to me. God said even before you knew Christ as your Savior, He loved you. And He sent Him to die for you. And if you all missed the next one, John 3... Billy Graham would roll over in his grave if you couldn't quote that one, wouldn't he? Because he preached it so much. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Because God did not send His Son into the world condemn the world because it was condemned already but that might be saved. Yes, God loves you. Sin, warts, and all. And then finally, what does he say? After you put on the sword, the helmet, and all the armor, what are you to do? Verse 18, the most important part of the whole passage. It's not the armor. Verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. This is what the church is to be doing. With all prayer and supplication. Put on that armor and you pray. And then what happens? God goes into action. One writer said, God doesn't move in your life when you struggle. He moves when you pray. Another says, this is Robert Murray McChain, by the way. Wow, what a, what a man on prayer. McChain says, O believing brethren, what an instrument is this which God hath put into your hands. Prayer moves Him that moves the universe. Put on the armor of God and above everything else, pray. Father, we come to You now in prayer. And Lord, we ask You, because we know in the lives of every person here, speaker included, we all have spiritual warfare. You've given us a local church, a family, a body. We all have the same Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. We're all here for the same reason, to worship You and to praise Jesus for what He's done for us. And we all have things in common, Father, like struggles. Loneliness, depression, 
fits of anger, temptation, trouble, problems in our home, problems at work, problems in our neighborhood. Everybody here, Father, is filled with problems. Help us as a church body to see that. And may we put this into action when it turns into spiritual warfare and help our brethren and our sisters to be able to navigate through this crazy life of spiritual warfare. Embolden and empower our parents, our grandparents, our single moms, our single dads to understand the importance of living your truth and sharing it with the next generation and helping them know that even though we're in warfare, the local church is what you have provided to help us deal with our spiritual warfare. And so may each one of us take part in being the answer and the solution to the problems in our brothers' and sisters' lives. May we make ourselves vulnerable so that people may actually know that we are weak and we are broken. However, together we will stand in the strength of the Lord and in the power of Your might. So help us as the church at Trinity here in Christiansburg to do that in our individual life and our family life, but even more, Lord, in our church so that we can be a safe haven for our community and our brothers and sisters in Christ. We thank You for the knowledge You've given us about spiritual warfare. May it help direct our paths in the days ahead. And may it help us understand when our marriage, our parenting, our children, our own life is under spiritual attack. And may we not be ignorant of Satan's devices now that we know the things that he uses to try to bring us down. But instead, may we stand in the gospel of truth and the power of your word and the unity of the Spirit with each other. And may you use it to defeat our enemy until you come and receive glory in your saints. Because it's to your name, the only name, that we give honor and praise and glory today. Through the name of Jesus Christ, our God and Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.